1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. Now this is the word of the Lord. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers. Older women as mothers. Younger women as sisters in all purity. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Uh, for the past few months here at our church, we've been looking uh, at this metaphor that likens the church to a building. Now, according to this metaphor in the Bible, uh, Jesus is likened to the cornerstone. And the apostles and prophets who wrote the New Testament are likened to the foundation of this building. And for the purpose of raising this building upon this foundation, Jesus calls in every generation and in every location elders and deacons to serve and to lead the church. And so if you can visualize it, you have the cornerstone, uh, the first corner of the foundation being Jesus and the foundation being the apostles and the prophets and from then on, the building of the church through deacons, and elders. Now, if I can stretch this metaphor just a little bit more, uh, when it comes to constructing a building, there are really exciting parts, there are really exciting fun tasks, and there are also really ordinary and routine tasks. Uh, for instance, designing and furnishing. That's exciting. There is nothing like going through a freshly printed Ikea catalog, <laughs> just going through that. And you go through each page and you sit there and you're just imagining all the potential, right? All the colors, right? Not colors, but colors, right? You sit there just imagining, oh, this space would be used and furnished in this way. Um, while there are exciting tasks, there are also very ordinary and routine tasks like caulking and priming and scaffolding, uh, all routine tasks and at times tedious, but nevertheless just as important. See, likewise is the case when it comes to the church. There are really exciting parts of ministry and there are real routine and ordinary parts of ministry. Now, whether they are extraordinary or ordinary, everything we know is built upon and relies on the foundation and the cornerstone. Now, today's passage that we've read seems to be emblematic of the latter. This section of Paul's letter to Timothy contains real practical instructions on how to be in relationship with one another. They are extremely ordinary and normal and simple instructions on how we can continue to function and be the church. Now, before I draw out some practical implications on these two verses, uh, let me point out just a few assumptions that Paul makes about the church. So first, it seems that here in these verses, Paul, he assumes that the church is a diverse group. Now, usually when we hear the word diversity, our minds immediately think of ethnic diversity. But true diversity, diversity that the gospel promotes, extends beyond ethnicity and includes social diversity, 
economic diversity, and generational diversity. And today's passage, what we have in front of us, is interested in generational diversity. In other words, young and old making up the body of Jesus. And it was over 50 years ago that uh, Martin Luther King said this. If we can click to the next slide, he said this. It is appalling that the most segregated hour in America is 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. This was said over 50 years ago. And frankly, not much has changed. Churches still continue to be homogeneous. Or as one of my friends likes uh, to put it, churches are so ghettoized, you'll only find in a church people of one life stage, or one ethnicity, or one culture, or one social class. Churches are made up of just a single group of people most of the time. Now, I don't know how you feel about this. Some people are really admit about diversity. Some people, it's okay, um, you know, meeting with people who are like you. But friends, let me just say this. The reason why the church ought to be diverse is because the gospel does not discriminate. You see, the good news is for the poor and it's also for the rich. The good news of salvation is for the weak and it's for the strong. It's for the humble and it's for the proud. The gospel is preached to an old dying man on his last breath and it is preached and prayed over a newborn who just came out of her mother's womb. Because the cross does not discriminate, it is natural that the church should be a diverse group. Friends, and as we continue to think about what the church is and our community, we should seek diversity. Not just ethnic diversity, but social diversity, economic diversity, generational diversity. Because by doing so, when the church is diverse, we can show, without saying a single word, we can show forth the indiscriminate nature of the gospel. So in other words, when people walk into church, not only will they hear that the gospel is for all, they will see that the gospel is for everyone. Now, that's the first assumption that Paul makes, that there is a generational diversity within the church. The second assumption that Paul makes here is that the church is not an event. It is not just a gathering. It is not just a community, but the church is a family. In this generational diverse body, Paul, he speaks on how we should treat older members of the church and how we should treat younger members of the church as fathers and mothers and as brothers and sisters because the church is family. I heard a story um, of a man in North Kenya who came from a strong Muslim background. He was raised a Muslim, he was reared um, in the Islam faith, and he had met Jesus. He had encountered Christ. He had accepted Jesus and he'd become a Christian. As a result of that, this man was thrown out of his family. He was disowned, and ultimately, he had to run away because his life was in danger. 
His village was after him. Now, as he's running away, he found a church, and he was overwhelmed with joy. And when the church met him, when they heard his story, they welcomed him with open arms. They gave him a corner of the building to live in. They gave him a mattress on the floor, and they delivered food to him daily, generously. Now, this man was extremely grateful for the hospitality that he received, But what he was really looking for wasn't just food and clothing and a place to live. He was looking forward to joining the Christian family. And as he lived in the church, he looked forward most of all to Sunday when the church would gather, when his family, when his new family would come. But he confided in someone at that point and he said this, the hardest part of the week was Sunday morning. When after church service, everyone would just go home to their families, have their Sunday lunches, and leave him all alone. And he said, although he was welcome to make his home inside the church building, he wasn't actually welcomed inside the homes of the church family. The person who heard this testimony writes this, this church was so near and yet so far from Christ-like hospitality. The church building provided shelter, the members provided sustenance, and the church event provided sacraments and spiritual teachings, but none of these were a a substitute for the lifelong intimate commitment of a family. Brothers and sisters, this is one of the hardest teachings, I think, in the Bible. We don't have any trouble accepting that God is our Father, We don't have any trouble accepting that Jesus is our brother. But it's actually quite difficult to accept that fellow believers are family. Not church family, but actual family. You see, if we deny this, we deny the power of Jesus. Because what Jesus does is he takes those who were once enemies with God and he makes them sons and daughters. And he takes those who were strangers with one another, and he brings them into a family. That's all through him. That's the work of the cross. And while we may have our differences that divide us, the cross is able to unite us. And if we don't believe this, we are rendering the cross powerless. There is a point in Jesus' ministry where um, at this point he's teaching and he's drawing large and large crowds. This one point he's teaching inside and his mother and his brothers are outside and they want to get in. They want to get closer. They want to come inside. And so they pull the family card. They announce themselves as VIP. They say, we are Jesus' mother and we are his brother's. We want to go inside. We want to speak with Jesus. So someone rushes outside, and uh, they, they, they uh, or someone from, from outside rushes inside, and they tell, tell Jesus, 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 your family is here. They want to be inside. They want to talk to you. And do you know how Jesus responds? He says, what are you talking about my family? My family is right here. Whoever does the will of my father, their family. Imagine being the person who hears that and has to bring that news back outside. 
right? Imagine being that person, right? You, you run back outside, right? And you, you go back to Jesus' mother and his, his brothers, and they're all proud and ready to, just to be escorted up to the front. And then you have to be the person to say, um, Virgin Mary, <laughs> Jesus said we're all his family. I mean, even Kim Kardashian can get front row seats to Kanye Sunday worship, right? You know, there is this old uh, German saying uh, that's translated well into in English, uh, blood is thicker than water. And that means friendship over, or family over friendship and love, right? I, I don't know if you heard that growing up, blood is thicker than water, right? Family's more important than any friend you have. Well, Jesus teaches that the spirit is thicker than blood. Meaning the most important relationships in your life are not the ones that you are naturally born into, but the ones you are spiritually born into. So Paul makes the assumption that church is family. And the third assumption that Paul makes is this. In this generational diverse body, in the family, there is also going to be a culture of correction. There's going to be a culture of confrontation and a culture of calling one another out. See, the instructions here are not if you approach someone, but when you do approach them in this way. So we find that there is this underlying assumption that within the life of the church, the members will be confronting one another, they'll be teaching one another, they'll be correcting one another, they will be speaking into each other's lives. Why? Because the church is family. Now, Paul makes these three assumptions that, we'll, that the church is made up of ge generational diversity, that the church is a family, and that there is a culture of confrontation. He makes these three assumptions. Now, at this point, I think the easiest thing to do is to critique the church. I think that's the easiest thing to do. To say, yeah, you know what, we lack diversity. Uh, we're not really a family. And to say, you know what, we don't have a culture of correction. That's the easiest thing to do. The harder task, on the other hand, is to read passages like the one we have today and really consider and apply what God is saying to our present context. So let me give some practical applications as to how these verses speak to us. First, if you look at verse 1, uh, there's a contrast between rebuking and encouraging. Paul says, when you address and speak to one another, don't rebuke, but encourage. Now, what does it mean to rebuke? Well, rebuke literally means to strike down. And used in the context of confrontation and speaking, it literally means to strike down with your tongue. So rebuking is a way of cutting the person, bringing him down, striking him with your tongue. Encouraging is the very opposite. Encouraging means to call to one's side. Encouraging is a form of inviting. The actual word that's used here is parakaleo, and kaleo means to call, and para is actually the prefix that we use even in English, which means alongside or besides, as in parallel. And so when Paul says encourage, it's this idea of calling the person alongside you. 
So encouragement is not flattery. It's not making someone feel good or happy. Uh, encouragement is not telling someone what they want to hear, but rather encouragement is a call. It's an invitation for the person to be comforted and confronted by the good news of the gospel. I think the English word is very helpful because um, within the word encouragement or encourage, you have the word courage. And encouragement is exactly that. It's filling the person up with courage. It means to give courage to. And so in the life of the church, the goal of our relationships and the goal of even our confrontations is not to strike people down, but to build them up. It's to fill them with courage that comes from the gospel of peace and hope. Now, if you uh, grew up in a more traditional home, if you grew up in a very uh, an, an Eastern cultured household, uh, like, like, like I did, you would think that encouragement is for the weak. You know, I always thought that growing up. Encouragement is the fool's bread. Encouragement is the fool's bread for the weak. I've always thought that. You know, encouragement is like government cheese, right? Free handouts without any nutrients. Encouragement is not good. But if you look in the New Testament, encouragement is not for the weak, but it's for the strong. You see, the truth is, we are not good at encouraging ourselves. We also have Satan, whose main job is to accuse us at every moment. We need encouragement. You remember there was that line in the movie Inception where uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, he, he, he asked this question, um, Oh, okay, I, I don't have it, but he says this. He says, what's the most resilient parasite? Is it bacteria? Is it a virus? Is it an intestinal worm? He says, no, the most resilient parasite is an idea. An idea is so resilient, it is highly contagious. He says, once an idea has taken caught of your brain, it's almost impossible to eradicate. An idea that is fully formed, fully understood, it sticks and it can grow to define you or destroy you. And friends, this is why we desperately need an outside voice. Because we are not good at encouraging ourselves. And we have Satan who accuses us over and over again. And so we need an outside voice that says, you are good. You are good because of Jesus. I recall a pastor once saying, I have never met anyone too encouraged. Never once. And so the idea here is within the relationship of the church, it, we are called not to rebuke, to cut down, but to encourage, to build up, to give courage. Now, uh, Paul Tripp, in one of his books, uh, War of 
uh, words. He, has, he, he um, makes encourage out to be a really nice acronym as to steps um, regarding how we can encourage. Now, I'm not a fan of acronyms, but I think this one is, is somewhat helpful. And he says this, if you want to encourage, these are the steps you should take. First, E, examine your heart. Uh, and note that it is your calling that you do this not because you want to. C, check your attitude. O, own your own faults. U, use words wisely. R, reflect on scripture. A, always be prepared to listen. G, grant time for a response. And E, encourage the person with the gospel. Now I'm gonna leave this up here just a little bit because I see that you are all voraciously taking notes. So, so you can, you know, just jot that down in your memory. But the way in which we encourage, or the, the manner in which we address one another, is not so that we can just cut them down, but it's to build up, to give courage. Okay. The, the second application point is this. I, I want you to, if you look in today's passage, I want you just to note the position Paul says this, if someone is older than you, speak to him as you would a father or a mother, right? From a subservient position, from a lower position, address him from a lower position. But if you speak to someone who's younger than you, what do you do? You address him as a brother. You go down to where he's at or she's at and you address them as a brother or a sister. So from this, we can see that confrontation should never be from top down. The confrontation that we engage in, the calling one another out, should always be either from a lower position, from bottom up, or from an equal position, but never top down. You know, like Jesus, as we confront and as we call one another out, as we engage in relationship and conversation with one another, we should take on the servant heart where we condescend, not be condescending, but we condescend to that person, we lower ourselves and we address them, or we go underneath that person and we consider them to be more important than ourselves. Philippians 2, as he describes Jesus, this is what he says. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but humility, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. So we find that in relationships, we either take a bottom-up approach or an equal approach. We condescend ourselves, we lower ourselves, and we engage in relationships with the body. Finally, the, the third application point is this. Um, in your relationships, Consider who you are speaking with. I, I know there's this idea out there that says, you know what, we shouldn't treat people differently. But I think Paul has the very opposite in mind. Depending on who you speak to, you should change your approach. That depending on the person's sex and the person's age, it should determine our attitude towards them. Remember, the gospel makes us equal, but it doesn't make us identical. And so, Paul says, when you address an older person, 
Do it as you would address your own parents. I think addressing parents is probably one of the most stressful things, at least for me. Speaking to parents is extremely painful. And I want to avoid it at all costs. And when I have to address them, I have my wife do it. <laughs> I say, honey, can you just do it, please? Call them, talk to them. I, I don't want to. You know, recently I had to uh, talk to my dad about something extremely serious. So we had planned, um, I had planned it out in my head how I was going to do it. I had planned a trip, I thought about it. And just thinking about it, I'm just anticipating his response. And I'm just, you know, what is he going to say? How can I counter it, right? You know, like, how can I counter it, right? In a very loving way. And to be honest, even until the moment we sat down and started talking, I had hoped, like deep in my, in my heart, I'd, I'd hoped that the circumstances would change so that we wouldn't have to have the conversation. Even that evening when we were supposed to talk, I had hoped that something would happen so that we could just avoid it and I could say, oh, well, next time. Because talking to parents requires a lot of, I think, mental jujitsu. It's a lot of grappling with yourself, a lot of restraint that you have to show. Talking with parents requires more love, more patience, more understanding. I think young people tend not to confront or call out older people for a number of reasons, but maybe they just don't want to deal with it, or maybe they don't think you know, it's, it's in their place. I, I don't think here at our congregation we have a culture of younger people addressing older people, confronting them, calling them out. But if we are truly family, we cannot avoid it. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. When you do address them, do it with gentleness as you would your own parents. Do it in an encouraging way to build them up. Now, when it comes to younger people, this is what Paul says. Encourage them in all purity, especially with younger sisters. So if you are older and you are addressing younger people, address them in a way that's encouraging, with purity. Now, I think purity here means to be careful, not to strip them of their innocence. And this goes especially for older brothers to younger sisters, because I know within the body of the church, yes, older brothers address younger sisters. And the idea here, here is that as you engage in relationship with younger sisters, if you are men, your call is to protect them and not to prey upon them. Our younger sisters should feel safe and secure around the older brothers of the church. I think the idea here is simply, if I can just translate it to more modern language, it's don't be creepy around the younger sisters. Don't be a creep. Protect them with all purity. And you know, more generally, older members, when you see younger members, encourage them. 
don't snuff out their passion, don't talk about reality. Because sometimes the doses of reality that older folks give to younger people, it's an extreme discouragement. Don't talk about what real life is. Be careful of bad exposure. Don't talk about, you know, how bad marriage is or your spouse or your children are. That is a discouragement. Who would want to get married? And certainly, if you are old and when you engage with younger people, do not hearken back to your younger days because I find that to be an extreme uh, discouragement. Saying, when I was young, I was better. But once you get married and have kids, everything changes. Does it? Does it? <laughs> Avoid that older fellow. <laughs> See, I, I, think, I think as older people, as we engage with younger folks, when we say we're speaking reality to them or talking about what's real, it actually can be discouraging. Fan into flame their passion. Don't snuff it out. And if it is true, if you see that there is a naivete or an innocence about it, don't strip them of that just yet. Wait, and when they get there, walk with them. Do not, condes do not be condescending, but condescend to where they are at. Now, I think there's this uh, natural, there's this thought out there in the world that says old people are hopeless, old people are just stubborn, and young people are foolish. Young people are naive. But that is not the position that Scripture takes. Old people are hopeful. They're full of hope. And young people can be wise. But it is the church's calling to lovingly encourage one another towards Christ. Now, in closing, I know, friends, that this task can seem daunting. Maybe you're still asking the question, how can we even be a family? Well, friends, the great hope of the gospel is this, we are already a family. The blood of Jesus unites us. We are not a natural family, but we are made a family through adoptions. And so, it, meaning it's not our background, it's not our skin color, it's not our ethnicity, it's not our experiences that make us a family. But what makes us a family are the higher powers, the work of the Spirit through the cross, which makes us a family. And now as a church, as the body of Christ, we are called to promote this unity by speaking and encouraging one another. Let me just end with this uh, this is from Ephesians chapter 4. Notice what he says. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, encourage you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. And notice what he says. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Not to create unity, but to maintain the unity that we already have by the work of the Spirit in and through the cross of Jesus Christ. In other words, the higher powers have already made us to be a family. We have been made a family through adoption. And now it is the church's calling 
to promote this unity, to maintain this unity. As we speak to one another, as we encourage one another, as we call and invite one another to the gospel. Would you join me in prayer at this time?